Welcome to Regulate Tech. This is our 31st episode with me, Nicholas Baird-Lumlod. Uh, and... This is our 40th episode, isn't it? No, this is the 41st, actually. 41st? The last one was the 40th. Oh my goodness. Did you miss our 40th I, anniversary, Richard? I'm, I, I'm did, sort of upset. I, no, no, no. I, I thought that we were, we're ahead of ourselves. Of course, yes, it's 41. Yes, yes. And you should trust the host, really. I think that's also not. Should we restart? No, no, no. I think this is this is this is good banter. We'll include it so they know that we're not chatbots. Okay, on to today's schedule. (laughs) So, um, one of the things that we want to talk about, and we've been sort of in the uh, vicinity of, is the question of patents. So, why don't you tell us a little bit about what patents are, their history, their original meaning, and then we can get into why they're super interesting for anyone interested in tech policy. Yeah, so so patents are, I mean, the derivation is um, from letters patent, which is an old uh, sort of medieval Anglo-French kind of uh, coinage. And the idea was that you would publish an open letter. So that's what the patent comes from the Latin word for to open up uh, or to open. And so it was an open letter granting somebody authority for something. So actually, when you become a member of the British House of Lords, you get letters patent that that explain to the whole world who you are and that, that you're a member now of the House of Lords. And so this came to be applied to all sorts of things, but in particular to inventions. And the idea essentially was that, look, when the state was granting somebody exclusive rights to exploit a particular invention, a particular technology, it would do so by means of these letters patent, an open letter. And the open letter said you had that right, but also very importantly, disclosed to the world what it was, what this invention was that you had the exclusive right over. So it served the function both of establishing your right, but also sharing with the rest of the world this clever thing that you come up with. So in other words, you couldn't have a closed technology uh, under a patent. So either you were going to open the thing up and you might be given this special right, or you might want to keep it closed. But if you kept it closed, then you wouldn't get this special right. So the openness and the right went hand in hand in this thing called a letters patent, which then over time gets shortened to just a patent. And and around this is also the idea that if you actually spend the time and money and resources to invent something, you need to have some ability to recover that investment. So talk a little bit about the economics of patents, how at least the theoretical model, and then we can we can sort of dig into if you think that's true. And and, and we should preface as well that we're not. um, We there are some people out there who are really really uh, deep uh, patent law experts that we would defer to on some of these questions, but. Again, I think we can usefully try and explain at the headline why these are important and why they're important to the tech community uh, in particular. And uh, essentially, that there, you know, when we sort of look at the whole field of intellectual property, as it's called, and some people like to contest that term, but but essentially, you you have um, copyright, and the notion of copyright is look, someone has taken a lot of time and effort to write something or record a piece of music or make a film, and so they have economic rights over any exploitation of copies of that particular work that they invested in creating. And that lasts for a very long time. Patents are slightly different. What they're saying is, look, somebody has created something. It's in the public interest or invented something, I should say. It's in the public interest that that invention comes out into the public domain. So we're going to give you exclusive right over that class of 
invention for a period of time. So not the specific copy. That's why it's really different from copyright. It's not the specific instance of the thing. It's anybody who makes a thing that is like the thing that you've invented and disclosed in your patent, uh, potentially you have some economic claim over them. And the logic there, again, is that, yes, if people are in, I think there are two pieces to it. One is, look, if somebody has invested in creating something, then there is a sort of fair play notion they should get some reward for it. But with patterns, very particularly, it's supposed to be something that other people wouldn't have come up with. It's supposed to be non-obvious in the jargon. And so, you know, the the state is granting you this exclusive license over everything that looks like the thing that you've invented, because the state is judging that uh, uh, if they didn't encourage you to disclose it, and it would remain private, then nobody else would come up with it because it was non-obvious. And therefore, the, the whole society would miss out on this wonderful invention that you've come up with. So that's really at the heart of it, this notion that we are giving you a special right in order to encourage you to disclose a thing that is good for society. And the right allows you to make to commercially exploit, if you choose to do so, the thing that you have disclosed. And, and in, in disclosing, um, I think this is important and interesting because in disclosing, that means also it actually allows you to commercialize whatever it is that you've come up with. Because if you were selling this on an open market and people could reverse engineer it, you would otherwise end up not being able to make any money from it, even though you might have invested significant resources in developing it. So, for example, a, a, a patent for a medicine of some kind. Mm. Uh, if you put put that up, people with really good lab equipment could reverse engineer what the active components are and they could do their own generic version of your drug. And if they did that, then all of the time and effort and resources you put into developing the drug would, would sort of not be for naught in some sense. So it's also encouraging you to commercialize without exactly. fear of reverse engineering, right? Yeah, yeah. You should, you, you know, if you've invested in creating this thing, uh, exactly right. That you should be willing to put it out into the public domain as a product, knowing, safe in the knowledge, if anyone copies it, not the specific instance, but copies the technology. As so again, very different from copyright. They they could do something a little bit different. They could brand it differently or badge it differently. But if it's using the same underlying technology as the one that you discovered then you have some claim over them. And typically that's exerted through a license. You can go to them and you can say, look, if you want to build something using the technology that I discovered, then I'm going to get a license fee for you. I'm going to insist that you pay me a license fee for your version of the thing that I discovered. Yes. And it's interesting because in, in intellectual property rights, generally you have this spectrum of different kinds of rights uh, that economists uh, like or dislike. Yeah. So uh, economists have a hard time with copyright because the incentive function seems to be okay, but what you're getting for your own effort is somewhat excessive. And since copyright actually continues after the author's death, uh, economists rightly will ask how incentivized you can be when you're dead and buried to actually create <laughs> new things. So there's something about that that sort of economists are, are more sort of hesitant to accept copyright with with its fairly longish times and and to be fair i think you know underlying copyright is this romantic notion of the genius who should be rewarded for giving their unique contributions in creative and artistic ways to humanity so and then you go down the scale and you you end up with with patents that are much more economically sound according to people like richard poster because they are essentially saying that okay well, you get a limited time protection for commercializing this 
has to be protected against reverse engineering. If you continue down, you have different kinds of pattern uh, protection. And at the very end of the scale, you have this weird sui generis database, right, that the, the Europeans came up with in a directive, which essentially says that if you have demonstrably spent lots of resources on making a database, other people can't just take that database from you for a very short time. Yes. And so you have the spectrum of, of economic rationality across the intellectual property rights uh, landscape. And patents are usually uh, much more accepted, in a sense, by, by economists and policymakers and seen as much less troubling than copyright. But are they really? Well, so they, I think they've become more contentious over time, and particularly in the tech area. Uh, and so, again, remarkably, I mean, one of the reasons we're talking about it is that both of us, I think, went through this experience where there was a European Union directive, proposed directive, on something that they called uh, computer-implemented inventions. So they are essentially this was trying to uh, sort of establish a framework for um, software patents over computer software within the European Union. And really unusually, this was proposed, I think, in 2002 and 2005, it, it crashed and burned. And this pretty much almost never happens. Like when the European Union proposes some legislation, it's an unstoppable juggernaut. It may get, you know, it may be slow, it may get diverted a bit, but pretty much, you know, in every instance, the European Union, when it says it's going to regulate something, it regulates it. Here they propose something. And you actually had people on both sides of the argument, you know, both those who who, who um, wanted more patentability of software, uh, kind of opposing the some versions of this regulation, this directive, because they thought it was not it didn't go far enough. And those who opposed the patenting of software, uh, uh, saying no, we can't have it because it goes too far. And in the end, this thing crashed and just didn't happen, and the status quo prevailed. And so that sort of gives you an indication just of how contentious it is when you bring it over into the software field, as opposed to you know, designing industrial machinery or drugs. I, even there, there's some controversy, but it's, I think, of a different order when you move into our zone. And primarily that's because of a concern that, in a sense, it's too easy to get a patent. And uh, because once you've got the patent, you're, you're able to kind of exert those rights over others, it has a stifling effect on innovation. That, that a, a granting, I mean, the argument against is that granting uh, patents on computer software in particular, and, and we can tease out what we mean by computer software versus these computer-implemented inventions thing, but by granting patents in this field, a very fast-moving technology where there's lots of development, you don't boost innovation, you don't boost the public good, you end up stifling innovation and actually acting against the public good. And, and there, there are a couple of, there's a lot to unpack here. But what, one of the things that is interesting is that this is related to something we discussed in an earlier episode around open source as a mode of production. Because a lot of the people who were nervous about patents for computer software were people engaged in the open source movement because they felt that if this happens, uh, the, the open commons of software that they were trying to create would be threatened on all sides by extremely strong economic actors. And, and this is something that we have to, in some way uh, add to the uh, overall landscape when we discuss patents. And it's not just, so the patent idea in itself is actually pretty logical. It has a certain rationality to it. But what happens 
when you have more than a single person in the game and you have two or three different players in the game is that suddenly at some point it becomes rational to start building what is called a defensive pattern portfolio. Yes. Can you explain that to us? Yeah, so if we um, actually maybe illustrate this with an example. So, so uh, we should also tease out this computer implemented invention idea. So imagine uh, we're all now sort of moving over to electric vehicles. They're great. And electric vehicles have lots of batteries in them. And the batteries are software controlled. So the way in which you draw power from those batteries is controlled by a piece of software. Now, if I write a really clever program that figures out how to make those batteries more efficient, it draws power in a really clever way that makes the battery, say, 10 or 20% more efficient. The software that I write is covered by copyright. So no one else can copy and take my software and use it without my permission. But 70 years after your death, by uh, the way, 70 years after, yes, we're yeah. celebrating that as a victory, which is kind of extraordinary, given yeah. that patterns are much shorter. Anyway, exactly. But, but that actual piece of software, you can't just take that and use it to control the batteries in your version of a car uh, if you took exactly the same software. But absent a patent, you could write your own software that does exactly the same thing, that, that you look at how I've you know, figured out how to make the batteries more efficient. You write your own software and your software does the same thing. Now, I might go along and say, look, I want to get a patent. And the reason I might be allowed to get one is because it's not the software on its own. And again, it varies from country to country. But in most countries, they would say, look, you can't just patent the computer program. But I would say, look, it's a computer program that works with a battery controller, a piece of hardware that has an effect in the real world that's sort of manipulating these batteries. And so I have a computer implemented invention, which is the software and the battery controller, and I want a patent over that. Now, imagine I've got that patent. I've persuaded a patent office it's sufficiently original. I can now build in my cars a, a battery power system that is 10 to 15% more efficient than everyone else. Um, and then what will happen is someone else will come along. They'll try and do the same thing. And there are, there are several options on the table. If I look at it and I think they've done the same thing as me using their own software, it's not breach copyright, I could go along and say, no, no, I insist on you licensing uh, the tool that I built, licensing the patent because you're basically doing the same thing I did. It was my invention. Um, and they may come back and say, this is where your defensive patents come in. They may say, well, your car <laughs> involves uh, a steering controller that actually looks very similar to one that I've patented. Uh, and that's, you know, we're using the software there to do clever adjustments to the steering in order to save wear on your tires. And so the defensive patent portfolio essentially is where you, you, you've invented things. You're a car manufacturer. You're building lots of software control systems. You register as many as you possibly can for patents so that when somebody else comes along and says that your car, and, and you may yeah, perfectly innocent. You've you've built something, you've written some software that controls the steering system, not even knowing <laughs> that some the thing you're doing has been done by somebody else and patented. But when they come along, the fact you've got patents means you can kind of trade off and go, look, you know, I'm not going to force you to take a license for for uh, my battery controlling system if you don't try and force me to take a license for your steering control system. Uh, and so these people end up with these portfolios, the big the big manufacturers, whether that's, to say, in vehicles or uh, uh, pharmaceuticals or indeed big software companies, so the Facebooks and the Googles and the Microsofts and people, they all build patent portfolios. Whether or not they believe in the patenting system, whether or not they're supportive of it, they build it because they, they want to feel confident that if somebody else comes along, 
they've got they've got a, a defensive weapon that they can wheel back. But this is a classical are... arms race situation, yeah. isn't it? Where, where what started out as an incentive for you to share and commercialize an invention you would put effort and resources into is actually turning into this huge sub-optimization of resources where people are building up these defensive patent portfolios so that they can cancel each other's patents out rather than have to uh, engage in litigation to challenge a patent. Uh, so the model seems to have been uh, going wrong, and there are some clear indications to that. One of the most egregious cases are people who who don't even build cars, to take yes. your example, but just sit you know, 200 people in a room, and they then tell them, why don't you just come up with an idea and I'll patent it for you? And they build these enormous patent portfolios and they come to you and they essentially have a super duper business model because they say to you, Richard, I really like your car, but unfortunately you're infringing on one of my patents and I'd like you to license that patent. And you go like, no, I'll challenge it. We'll say, just let me tell you the license fee first. It's half of the average cost of challenging a patent in court. Yes. Your choice. Yeah. And so this, this is too, right? yeah, exactly. And this is where we get to the harm. So let's take that example and go with it. I've got this wonderful battery controller thing that is now ten to fifteen percent more efficient than everyone else's. Now, one way in which I could use that is to say, no, I'm, I, I actually don't want to license it to anyone else. I want my cars. You know, it's one of one of the advantages to my cars is they're going to be more efficient than anyone else's because they use patented technology. And actually, you see this as an advertising ploy a lot of the time. If you go out there of patent, you know, we are using patented technology, the implication being uh, that we are doing something that other people can't do in whatever it kind of product. It's not only a ploy for a startup, it's a way to get venture capital, right? It, yeah. To say that they have patents. It, exactly, yes. And I think there may be some in court in the US at the moment who are sort of going through uh, uh, challenges around that. So, so um, yes, you, you go forward and patenting, you know, uh, one of the potential harms is something that is good for society. You know, it generally would be good for society if every car ran on more efficient electric batteries. But you might end up in a scenario where, somebody is trying to hang on to their advantage and is kind of unwilling uh, to license it out. And there's a whole set of procedures around when the courts will intervene and require licensing to happen. Again, well, that's where we want to talk to our patent lawyers who understand this uh, better than I do. But there is, you, you should know there is a procedure there to kind of force uh, licensing of technology where um, there are particular interests involved. That's anyway. So let's imagine one scenario is, other people don't get the the uh, uh, technology at all. The second is they do get it, but it just adds to cost. And so in, the, in that scenario that you described, Nicholas, that yes, um, somebody owns that patent, they're quite willing to license it to all and sundry, but what they're essentially going to do is take a little tax out of you know, every new car that's built using this technology because the market wants the more efficient batteries, and so this person takes a tax out. Now, where they were genuinely the inventor and they have genuinely invested a huge amount of time and resource into building that new software control battery system, most of us would probably go, well, that's fair enough. And where, and where other people wouldn't have simply kind of discovered the same thing, we might say, fair enough, that's a fair reward. But where the thing that they patented, other people are saying was actually pretty obvious and everyone else, you know, was sort of working in the same direction. They just didn't get to the patent office in time. Then I think we might start to feel a bit more like this is a kind of tax on innovation rather than a genuine reward. And certainly where you're in a situation where the patent is being wielded by people who have no interest in cars at all <laughs> and batteries at all, but are simply sort of playing the odds in terms of we own 
you know this thing on paper and we know that if we go and talk to you you'll you'll be willing to pay us to go away rather than risk your product i think we have even less sympathy again so so I say this thing which was intended to protect that person who's come up with the the unique idea that nobody else would have thought of and has put it into the public domain for the public good and is prepared to license it under fair terms that's I think still acceptable, um, but where somebody is using it, they, they you know where you feel they've got a patent too easily, the thing was too obvious, and of course in the software world in particular, again this becomes true. You know there are, there are very few people, you know, who are, uh, there's more today, but there have historically been very few people who are coming up with new drugs because they can afford the many many hundreds of millions of pounds you need for a drug development system. There are far, far more people who can sit there and code and could have come up with a battery controller just as original and good as the one that was patented. And so I think, again, we're in a world of software where a lot of the time people would say, look, you know, you got there, you got lucky rather than you you, you were displaying a particular skill. And, and also, I mean, not only you got lucky, but but you were sort of consistently generating patents, more than a hundred a day, and overwhelming the patent office with them in order to just see if you could blanket this particular innovation domain, and then go ask for licensing money from it. That kind of behavior, sometimes referred to as as a patent troll, yes, uh, seems to be deeply problematic. And what, what? How do you fight the patent troll? What's the What's the best way of meeting that kind of behavior yeah i mean if, if the intent you know is is sort of well again the intent is purely to extract money and there is no uh, once you've got sort of several stages away from the actual inventive process i think most of us say would feel that there's something sort of morally objectionable about that um uh, and so i think that's that's the challenge is that and, but when you're again in a legal world where you're building products uh as a company you know the the temptation just to settle and make it go away is huge, um, and so you do get some big uh, cases that that take place. But uh, many times people will just settle; they'll just buy the thing out uh, in order to try and make it go away. Where I have particular sympathy is for those who are not commercial at all, and this is where the open source world is particularly affected. Where you know it, a big company has some means of kind of playing the game with a law firm that's trying to use patents aggressively against it. They can they can mix it up with them and they've got lawyers themselves, they can pay it off. Where it becomes really problematic is, to take my example again, if if a group of software developers, the open battery group, who, who are motivated by nothing else other than improving, you know, battery usage for the whole world in order to get us to net zero faster, and they write some code and their code's great and it improves the battery efficiency for everyone and it turns out it's doing something very similar to the thing that was patented when they get a cease and desist notice from whether it's from a big company or one of these law firms that's built up a portfolio there's nothing they can do they haven't got money to pay it off and so their development effectively stops and the world lose out and actually what you'll see is they'll develop in other directions again the, the history of some of the uh, formats that we use for uh, uh, images and sound actually are, uh, examples of this where in the open source community there was a big shift away from using gif files um some years ago because gif files actually they, they've made a comeback now um but the reason that we use <laughs> png files portable net, uh, network graphics files and we usually we use files like that rather than gif files for, for a long period of time was that gif files have within it an encryption mechanism 
that had a patent over it. Uh, on MP3 files, there's there's patented technology involved in MP3 files again, and and the open source community used a, a standard called OgVorbis. So you, one of the reactions is again, you can argue from an innovation point of view, you innovate around or away from the patented technology, but at the same time, it's act, potentially acts as a kind of significant limitation that you know in the open source community there are there are sort of whole no go areas where uh, if you went into them you would risk you know uh, tripping over patented technology uh, with no means to fight back you've got no defensive patent portfolio you've got no uh, sort of expensive lawyers to fight them off you've got nothing to settle those claims with and so you end up and, and this was the real fear uh, that people like Richard Stallman and other people in the free software world had that by allowing a broad range of patentability of software you would make the space smaller and smaller within which open source uh, uh, software developers can operate uh, because they'll continually be tripping over examples of of methodologies uh, that are subject to a patent somewhere in the world. And and the other thing that you see people doing is to join forces collaboratively, right? And so they can form a collaborative crowdsourced group that goes out to see uh, if they can collect prior art, prior art being what essentially something that shows that what you're what you got a patent for was already invented when you got the patent which invalidates the patent so there there are some ways of doing this and there are a lot of collaborative open volunteer movements that are trying to invalidate what they consider to be some of the most harmful patents that have been granted so there's like this is a live question in many ways but the, the question i wanted to to ask you it seems that there's an obvious fixed to this, and that would be to either limit the amount of patents that can be granted in a year or make it harder in some way and raise the bar in the patent office. How much of this is actually about how patents are granted, the mechanics and logistics of the patent office? I mean, that's where a lot of the criticism lies. I mean, uh, uh, you know, historically criticism that patent offices uh, and I'll say it as gently as I can, kind of don't understand what they're looking at uh, and therefore, you know, are are being too sympathetic to the person who's seeking the patent and not rigorous enough. So there is a definitely a, a sort of sense that, um, you know, uh, patent offices can be a pushover. Again, depending in the on the country that you're in, either they're a pushover because they don't understand technically or that they've actually been given an explicit government mandate to be more... Uh, uh, generous, shall we say, or more permissive of patents. And, and again, this is where that EU debate uh, back in the day over this proposed directive was playing out, that with this was trying to set a standard for the European Union as a whole, whereas there were in different national uh, um, uh, patent offices quite different approaches. So say partly uh, based on uh, political approach as well as on sort of skill level. So a lot of concern that you know, when you get to the patent office, uh, it, it, there, are, there are variations in policy from office to office around the world, and that some of them are, sort of frankly, too willing uh, to side with somebody and grant a patent inappropriately. There's also a lot of questions around you know, how do you find out <laughs> what patents are being granted if you do want to challenge them and, and explain that there is prior art or explain that something's obvious. Again, there's a lot of uh, paperwork in patenting. There's some descriptions you read of you know, people who actually invented things who later go back and look at the patent that was granted and they don't recognize their own invention from the patent that was granted. So a lot of the language of patentees 
uh, actually makes things really difficult. So even where you know, a patent officer said, look, we're minded to give a patent to this thing, and people will look at it, they will look at it and go, well, that I don't, don't see why there's a problem with that. Three months later or six months or a year later, there's an issue over that patent and you find out that it meant something that you didn't think it meant at all. Meant at all. So there's a kind of whole uh, uh, area around you know, tracking what patents are being granted and understanding what those patents mean that's really challenging for those who want to go against them. And then when it comes to the legal challenges, you know, overturning a patent it, it typically is a very expensive exercise. And again, there's a lot of political debate around whether uh, that should be made easier um, so that if somebody does want to challenge a patent, that they can get it struck down uh, in a more straightforward way and, a, frankly, a cheaper way than has been the case to date. And there's another a strand of this debate which essentially argues that a patent, in order to understand if what you're doing actually falls under an already existing patent, you have to explore the analogy in some way. What you're doing, what the patent says, those are not the same. So in order to find out if they're the same, you have to construct that analogy and you can do it in different ways. So one argument around computer implemented inventions has been that, yes, we can grant those patents, but they should be extraordinarily narrow. So yes. if there's any deviation in what you're doing from what's actually granted in the patent, then you, you're outside of the patent and you're fine. So this notion of narrow and broad patents is that still a live debate? Yeah, I mean, that's really important. And, uh, and again, I think you, there's, so the history of patents is littered with things like that, but it'll, it'll be things like uh, that patents have been granted over stuff like shopping carts and one-click shopping and do you leave something, you know, what happens when you leave something in the shopping basket and so on. So people have, have sort of looked at all the aspects of the e-commerce flow and they've patented that. And again, you can see the difference between a broad patent would be, ooh, having a shopping cart, <laughs> you know, would be the broader kind of pattern. The narrow kind of pattern would be, you know, having a shopping cart uh, that has these five specific kinds of functionality that link to these other specific systems that result in, you know, payments and goods being shipped. And so that narrow pattern, you're much less likely to infringe, obviously, if you're building something, or it gives you a lot more scope to build things with shopping carts uh, that are non-infringing. So the broader the patent, the more likely it is that someone's going to you know, complain that there's an infringement. And then the critical question again becomes, look, who's holding that patent? A broad patent held by somebody who's primarily motivated in maximizing the money they can get for that patent is going to be problematic because they're going to be firing off uh, uh, sort of legal warning notes to to everyone who goes anywhere near that. A broad patent held by um, one of the larger companies for defensive reasons arguably is going to be less problematic in that they're not uh, seeking to enforce it, uh, but they're simply seeking to defend their territory if anyone comes uh, in their direction. But again, I mean, on the defensive patents, there's still a lot of people who object in principle to that whole notion. Uh, it's just that from an individual developer's point of view, you may feel less uh, under threat from defensive patterns than you are from these ones that are being used uh, explicitly to extract revenue. And that's it. That would be the worst case scenario, I think, for somebody from a developer point of view is broad patents that close off whole areas of development uh, that say, to use my example again, you know, software-controlled battery controllers. <laughs> if you want to have a software-controlled battery controller, you must come to me and get a license that in the hands of an aggressive commercial player is going to be really problematic for a kind of whole sector of industry that we actually need to grow. Yes. So we, we've, backing out, we've we've gone from this really rational mechanism that provides 
some protection for somebody who commercializes and puts their invention into the field if they have spent enough resource in order for this invention to be worthy of the patent. A, a sort of a reasonable economic mechanism too, the, this being used by uh, people who have no intention to put it in the market at all, but only want to license, and to people who are interested in figuring out just how they can defend against those former actors. So you build up defensive. Well, at some point, doesn't the original mechanism lose incredibility and legitimacy, given that it can be abused in so many different ways? Are there people who still who think today that patents should be abolished? altogether because there was a huge debate in the US early on I think it was in the in, it must have been in the 50s or 60s mm. where the economist Fritz Machlup said that the only advantage an inventor needs in order to recoup the investment recoup the investment that he or she has made is having made it first yes. so that the time lag was the only thing you needed patents he thought was horrible he was of the Austrian school with Hayek and von Mises yeah. and all those and actually testified in Congress against the idea that patents were needed at all because inventors were so ingenious that they would be able to just with that little bit of advance in time recoup their investment so are patents extraordinarily legitimate today are is there resistance what does the political debate look like yeah the political debate um goes backwards and forwards <laughs> uh, cyclically and it's one of those again we should remember patents are granted on a national basis so there is a European version of it, but but typically historically they've bid on a national basis, and you need to apply in each territory. And uh, but you have got a European Patent Office that will grant you a, a patent for the European or the EU territories. Um, obviously, post Brexit, now the UK, which is another significant market, is outside of that framework. So so you will get different approaches potentially in different national territories. There will be proposals to reform the system. Uh, they come up on a sort of cyclical basis. Um, I think it's challenging because the sectors are so different. Um, and again, if we think of the times we're in now with COVID uh, and the kind of technologies are, are being developed in the uh, medical world, the pharmaceutical world in order to respond to COVID, I think you know a lot of people would, would look at that and go, where a company has you know, really it made this huge multi-billion dollar investment uh, and they built something, then they should, I think, fair play, have some protection over it. But there are limits. Uh, and in fact, actually, in the pharmaceutical world, there are uh, uh, overrides that are possible within the international treaties and the conventions. A, a nation state can override a patent if they believe it's in an emergency and in their essential interest to do so. So uh, in that instant they've actually you know international law over time has kind of created an override mechanism to say look patents are really important but they're not uh more important than life and death and so that, those mechanisms can be uh, um invoked uh where somebody is is sort of uh, feels that it's gone too far um or, or feels that they're being un unfairly restrictive over the technology that's been developed there are also notions of patent pools and and this idea that you know the people have developed this clever uh, pharmaceutical technology in particular they would uh, put it into some kind of common public pool so that it can be exploited by everyone and not exclusively exploited um i proposed your electric cars didn't tesla do that uh, i don't know if they have actually yeah they've done uh, they, with some so of the they, they put yeah. out uh, they, uh, the idea at the time, the way I heard it framed, and, uh, we should we should discuss. But the, was that uh, Elon Musk decided to put out the core uh, patents that uh, Tesla had, 
uh, as open patents, yes. which was a brilliant move in many ways because he created this unpatentable space around the company by having uh, his own patents be open. So it's a great way of using your defensive mm. patent portfolio, but offensively around the field where you are. And he had a beautiful phrase, if I remember correctly, when he was asked about this, he said, if somebody else can do electric vehicles better than Tesla with the patents that we have, they should, because I'm interested in getting them yeah. out. And saving yeah. the world rather than building a company, which I thought was yeah. just brilliant. Yeah, yeah. And, and so there, this is a version of your defensive patent uh, yeah. idea, right? I find that quite attractive. Yes, <laughs> yes, <laughs> I, I do too. Yeah. I do too. Yeah. <laughs> so that's people taking the law, and in a sense, that's like the copyleft movement over software. It's saying, look, I've got my software, and I'm just going to put it out as open source, and you've got to take it, you know, take it. Um, but what you can't do is close it down again. So I've so created you have a benign patent troll, essentially generating a lot of patents in a specific domain, openly licensing them and saying, you can't enforce them against me if you're using them. And by doing that actually eliminates the externality that comes from the original patent, but it's still kind of costly. So yeah. there, there, is a, there is another problem here that I find is interesting and, and it might lead us a little bit too far, but it's interesting to contemplate. And that is that the way we use things tend to impact how they evolve. And one of the things we do with patents that I've always found mildly annoying is that we use them as an index for how innovative a country is. Yes. How does that work? Yeah. And why do people not think that that will lead to people thinking that more patents are better than less patents? Yeah. I mean, I, I guess it's just a um, classic sort of governmental spin on, on things that they want to uh, be able to demonstrate that they their country is an innovation nation and they'll look at all different measures. I mean, and again, you can argue all of them have got kind of inbuilt biases, a number of uh, PhD students completing their doctorates or a number of Nobel Prize winners. And one of the others is yeah, patents that, and, and again, it comes back to this notion of the, of the uh, intellectual property. In a sense, it's saying we have more intellectual property than everyone else because we've granted this number of patents so it's almost like saying we've got more buildings than somebody else we've got more uh, physical type property um, but you're right I'm not sure it means anything other than potentially that there is a strong patent industry there might be a quite efficient patent office and an efficient set of patent lawyers and a culture that's developed over time that that says we should, uh, you know, get lots of patents. It may be one uh, again. Typically, it might be one of the bigger markets, and therefore, um, a lot of foreign companies will be seeking patents in that country as well. So, there's all sorts of reasons that why yeah, there might be you, a big patent portfolio. But, but you get the situation where venture capitalists will look for patents in a startup. So the startup yeah. is incentivized to get patents, even if it doesn't believe it's directly in its business interest, because that's how it gets funding. You have the situation where we count patents in order to figure out which country is more innovative than another. So the patent offices actually have an, an incentive not to be too harsh because then they will slide down the innovation scale. It turns patents into this really interesting phenomenon of, of political sub-optimization across another dimension. Not only do we see defensive patents cropping up, but now we see patents being generated to, to satisfy these second order uh, mm. effects of funding in venture capitalism or rating in innovation. And so what, has, what this has led to now is, is, is an arms race of another kind, which is not defensive patenting between companies, but actually patenting between countries. So there's been a patent race between the US and China for the longest time, and China now uh, issues more patents a year than the US does. Do you think that we go going to a future where patents will become geopolitical uh, weapons as well? I think potentially, but, but again, they have to. Uh, there has to be some kind of accommodation because some of the 
big patent cases that there have been actually are across these national boundaries. So it'll be, it'll be, and again, that people believe that there's politics inserted into that. So if it's a, you know, Chinese company versus a US company, and whether that's being fought out uh, in a Chinese court or a US court, you can imagine that people will uh, make it's assumptions about protectionist that. barrier after yeah. all, isn't it? If you want to come into a market, and then this other company says, "No, we have patents on everything you're doing." Yeah, and that, and again, what that in, incentivizes again, if you think about the incentive to go through the market, if you're a Chinese company with patented technology that you believe is genuinely inventive, uh, and you believe that um, you're going to be potentially in a weaker position in the US courts, the incentive is to get your patents into the US as quickly as possible. So you state your claim and vice versa. And so you end up, again, incentivizing that because what you don't want to be is, yeah, in that case, the the large Chinese company uh, suddenly hitting a whole load of problems with perhaps smaller American companies who just understood the American system better, got there first, and from your perspective, potentially had a much more sympathetic judge. And so you will get these, uh, um, I think, cross-border pattern disputes that have a whole set of different dimensions from the purely national ones where you're looking at two different economic actors within a country uh, and the judge is making a decision between those two. This is a policy area where one of the things that matter most is which actor has the highest ability to absorb litigation cost. Yes. Um, and it's one of the clearest examples I know of litigation cost factors into overall policy work and how we think about it. But so how do you think about how, how should a public policy uh, person working for a company think about litigation and litigation cost in advocating on behalf of their company? Yeah. I think this is where your company position really comes out. So I remember the discussions at, at Meta uh, that you know, most of the software engineers are, are I would say, in the anti-patent uh, uh, wing of the debate. You know, a lot of them, as we discussed last week, a lot of them are themselves producing open source software. That they're very sort of skeptical of the idea of uh, um, patents in the software world, not least because it would stop them, potentially it's going to restrict their activities. And so you start with a company that is kind of skeptical of patents. They end up building a defensive portfolio and having to justify that to their own team uh, in order to sort of pr protect themselves. Um, but if that's the position of the company, the company is essentially hostile. From a public policy point of view, I think for you and I, it's relatively straightforward to then sort of articulate that what you're looking for when, whenever there are changes to legislation is you're looking to narrow the scope of patents, you're looking to reduce the cost of litigation, you'd be looking to make it easier uh, to, to um, uh, uh, demonstrate prior art, etc. So in other words, you would be advocating for policies that would undermine your own company's patents potentially and make them less valuable, but safe in the knowledge that your company's position is you know, primarily what you want from public policy is to reduce the ability of hostile forces using patents against you. But that's where it comes to the rub. If if you, on the other hand, work at a company that prides itself on having patented technology, then you're going to be lobbying in the other direction for broader patents, higher bars. But I, sit, I think I'm pretty confident in most of the tech, well, actually, I don't know about Microsoft not having worked there or being close enough to it, but certainly... I think for most of the internet-y type tech companies, my sense is that they're very strongly in the, you know, uh, anti-patent or, or limit patent camp rather than the expand patent camp. 
And I, I also found it interesting that it's one of those areas where different industries are completely not aligned. Because whenever you would walk into a patent discussion, you would talk about the reasonable bar, or you would say that we should have more narrow patents, etc. Um, the the smart people who who were sort of advocating before patents, they would just invite somebody from from the um, from the health or medical industry. And they would naturally go like, are you crazy? We spend billions of dollars on this and we don't know if it's going to work or not. If we don't have any assurances that we'll be able to recoup those costs, we're not going to be able to spend any money at all. So it's one of those where different industries are really at loggerheads with each other, right? Yes, yeah. And and um, again, I think interesting phenomenon at the moment is some of the the differences are breaking down. So historically, I think when the when the big software patent debates were happening, when the Free Software Foundation and others were, were sort of driving this debate, you could argue quite legitimately that there was a major difference between the software world and worlds like pharmaceutical and so on. So you could have a policy that changed, you know, that, that would even give broader uh, patentability to pharmaceuticals whilst narrowing the patentability of uh, uh, software products if you wanted to. Over time, that's really shifting. So you now have software developing drugs. Uh, uh, you've got, as I described earlier, you've got software controlling uh, industrial systems. So software is everywhere. Um, a, the AI revolution means that, again, AI-driven invention is everywhere. And so in some senses, these distinctions may be breaking down. So we may be in an era where for intellectual consistency, uh, it may be that you end up, so you, you have to move away from saying, look, I, I, you know, I don't care as a tech guy if pharma have their patents, different worlds. But what I really care about is not having broad patentability in my software world. Yeah, that's going to be tougher because <laughs> uh, you're going to be saying so. Yeah, but not the software or AI driven bit of pharma, just the bit where they put chemicals in test tubes and shake them up, you know, that bit. <laughs> uh, that's the really bit yeah. So it's going to get much, much harder over time to kind of separate these things out. You know, the the new vacuum cleaner, you know, again, that'd be another example of where people invented new forms of cyclone vacuum cleaner and things like that. And you say, well, these industrial things are different. We can, we can understand why you would give a pattern to a new industrial product but over time now the clever thing about the industrial product will not necessarily be anything about the engineering of it but something about the software controls that are sitting on top of it i think it's fair to say going back to the question of what the debate is today that there's nobody actually seriously considering abolishing patents or opposing the existence of patents that that debate is closed but if you sketch out um a sort of pro-tech patent agenda the typical components would be i think things like you would like more funding for the patent office so that they actually have the ability to look more into uh, the different patents and make sure that the bar is higher. You'd like to have the ability to collectively challenge patents um, so that uh, you, so several people can challenge a pattern, uh, patent actively. You'd like to perhaps think about litigation costs and say yes. that each party should carry their litigation costs no matter the outcome of the litigation so that if you're a smaller company, you won't be sort of be overburdened by the millions of dollars that your opponent spent on lawyer costs. You would like to have some kind of prohibition against patent trolls that have no intention of commercializing. And that's sort of an ongoing discussion. What are, are there other components that you would suggest fit into a pro tech patent agenda yeah and and maybe again in the in the tech space um some provisions learning some of the uh, some of the lessons that come from the health space so there may be you know so 
intellectual property and private property rights are important. But where um, that's just sort of very demonstrably against the public interest, you need to have an override. And so I'd look at it in some cases, you know, what are the conditions in the tech space where you'd have an override equivalent to the overrides that are there in the health space? Um, for example, in some of the patent debates that uh, the case have been taking place, again, I'm not the expert on the ins and outs of them, but when you read the headlines, some of them would say, well, this will make, you know, all of the phones of a certain class illegal in a particular country because they're using a technology and the manufacturer of those phones has not been paying the license fee to the owner of the patent, therefore we'll make them all illegal. Now, like from a public interest point, that would be absurd that, you know, hundreds of tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people's phones, you know, uh, from a legal point of view are supposed to be switched off. So there has to be some way of having some kind of override in conditions where where e- even if you accept the patent was validly awarded and you know that, that hasn't been challenged, it hasn't been struck down, um, but the enforcement of that patent would be problematic. And again, there are these licensing, uh, um, sort of fair and reasonable licensing, Correct. non-discriminatory yeah, licensing that sort of kicks in at that point. But again, that can be very late in the day and very expensive to establish. So what are the ways in which you know, the real public interest can be played into this. Um, I think that's interesting. I think I kind of clearing out of old patents would also be interesting just from the point of view of, you know, uh, from a point of view of trying to develop a new technology, patents are kind of cumulative at least up to 20 years uh, when they do fall off the end. But there's been a lot of them been awarded. And if if you were to do your real due diligence before building something, there's a lot of patentees you would have to read in order to be really confident. So again, how many of those patents are in use? Is there a use it or lose it provision? Is there you know, other ways of uh, um, just cleaning out the crud, the the thing that somebody filed that uh, was awarded, but actually, you know, is not going to be uh, used in any meaningful way, and therefore it's better just to to have it, yeah, you know, not well, there. I mean, maybe maybe this is a weird thing to do and probably mm. not very principled, but you could imagine a world in which you actually had some kind of tax incentives for giving up patent portfolios to doing where you sort of publish them openly, where you just discontinue them and not register them again, and you get a tax credit for that. Because the other thing that happens is that people just tweak a small part of it and they extend the patent yeah. um, uh, in different ways. There, there's like currently no downside in uh, extending your patents except for the very, very small cost of patenting which you could also figure out if you want to raise the cost of the initial patent yeah. application. And there there could be different patent application costs, I suppose, for different kinds of actors. Um, but it's it's an area where, where we see there's a, not a lot of... No. I, I'm trying to figure out if there is any ongoing legislative no. agenda there, but I don't think there is. No, I mean, it comes back to political intent. And what's remarkable, if you go, as most people go back and look at this debate that happened between 2002 and 2005, I say this proposal was dropped, uh, but the underlying argument was never settled. So you have people on both sides. You ended up uh, with different texts. If people understand the European system, the European Commission proposes something, and then the European Council, the government's, will come up with their text, the European Parliament will come up with their text. And essentially, you had a kind of pro-industry, if I can say that, sort of big pro uh, um, extension of patents or strengthening of patents lobby within the 
the governmental space. And then you had some governments in the European Parliament sort of largely saying, no, no, we want to narrow patentability. And that's because they, they subscribed to different philosophies. The philosophy of those who supported it was uh, um, more intellectual property is good for my country, good for business, is in the public good. And the view of the other side was no granting more patents in the software space. They essentially signed up to the Free Software Foundation view of the world is going to be against the public interest. It's going to narrow a, a wonderfully creative and innovative space where people are writing new software. And we never settled that debate because in the end, they kind of just walked away and said, right, we're just going to drop the legislation. So I'm not, I'm not sure it's settled. And I think that is the critical question. This phrase I repeatedly use is, what is the political intent? You know, what is, what is the view of a government uh, in a particular country? Do they subscribe to the view that all is well in the kingdom of patents? <laughs> Or do they subscribe to the view that this is potentially really problematic, uh, uh, particularly in the software space? So not too it's in the other space, but in the software technology space. And if they subscribe to that view, then they would, over time, implement a series of reforms, such as we described, where you're, you know, if not abandoning patents, you're chipping away and narrowing them. And you get to the point where if you're a person with a software-based product, you kind of just know it's not worth applying. Um, and that would be where political intent would take you. But I'm I'm not aware of that happening. I say I think in most countries, the the debate is still unresolved and still being fought out. Yeah. Well, that's a good point to end on, and I think it's a fascinating debate. I think underlying it is also a question about uh, the nature of innovation, because there's there's this phenomenon of of parallel innovation where the same thing gets invented in two different places at the same time because the underlying technology base was ready for it. And the patent sort of dissuades that because you are now in a race to be the first rather than to develop different models and learn from each other. So in a sense, the patent actually puts a cost not only on, it's not sort of a tax on innovation, it's a tax on mutual learning as well. So it's a it's a it's a really interesting debate and one of the most undervalued ones I think and and yeah. you know it would be really surprising if we go into 2022 and find out that it's going to be patent year wouldn't it yes yes I I, I suspect not um, but it, it, we might get lucky <laughs> we might get lucky I like <laughs> yeah, that. have another debate they'll run for three years and then and then fizzle out because no one could agree on anything <laughs> yes 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 well uh, with that you can find this podcast on your website which it's at www.regulate.tech and it'll be listed as episode 41 that's right isn't it 41, <laughs> 41. Yes, it is. which means that next episode is 42 and oh, that's God. special so we have to think about how yeah. we do that um thank you so much for listening and we hope you tune in next time as well